0: Father, I just pray today as we are taken through heaven's door and we see this grand vision of you sitting on your throne in all your glory, Lord, that uh, you will open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual uh, hearts to just see what what's uh, taking place here, to see this grand vision of, of just who you are. Father, it changes everything if we can just get a vision of, of you on your throne, uh, it changes uh, how we worship you in spirit and in truth Lord. it changes uh, uh, it changes our whole attitude, Lord. it gives us such confidence and such peace and such joy to know Lord, that even now you are on your throne, Lord, and you are in our lives and in our hearts and in our church, and we'll be able to see all of this today as you you show us uh, uh, this vision of of, of heaven, Lord, uh, one of the greatest passages in, in the entire Bible, and so we just are excited about what you're going to show us, and we ask you to, to open our uh, hearts and ears to, to this message today. We just ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name I pray, amen. So if you will, turn in your Bibles, and we'll be in Revelation chapter number 4, Revelation chapter number 4. And When we left off last week, John was standing on the earth and uh, suddenly his eyes were opened and he saw heaven and he saw the door to heaven open and he heard this voice like a trumpet, which was the voice of Jesus Christ, and the voice said, come up here. And when Jesus said, come up here, guess where John was? He was immediately in heaven. And uh, so today we're going to continue this uh, study on these visions that John has of heaven in in chapters four and five. And he's going to give us some snapshots of what heaven really looks like. So this is some really exciting material here that we're going to be looking at. So go with me to chapter number four and let's pick up in verse number three. And it says, and he who sat there was like, we're talking about on the, remember he saw one throne and one God. And he said, he who sat there on that throne was like jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, who is this guy on the throne? Well, I told you, I already told you in advance it's Jesus Christ. But we get proof of that all through this text. And the first clue that we get that this is Jesus on the throne is the fact that, look at what it says there in that very first part of verse number three. He sat there. Now I've got to tell you something. In order to sit there, what do you have to have? You have to have a body. You know, there are a lot of people who envision uh, Two embodied gods in heaven, I hear this all the time, and I hear this from a lot of evangelicals. Some people see God the Father as this God with this long flowing gray hair and uh, this long flowing gray beard. He kind of looks like Phil Robinson, you know kind of that look. Uh, I hope he looks better than that.'m not picking on Phil, but uh, we know he looks better than that, but uh Uh, He actually doesn't look like anything, because we're told that God is spirit. So there's only one embodied God on the throne, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. God the Father is spirit. There aren't two thrones in heaven, and there aren't two embodied gods in heaven. Now, God the Father certainly is in heaven. God the Spirit certainly is in heaven. Uh, Actually, God the Spirit, when we were in chapter 1, 2, and 3, where was God the Spirit? He was on earth. So God the Father is everywhere, and God the Son is on the throne. That's why John, when he was speaking to the woman at the Samaritan well, remember what he said, uh, I mean the Samaritan woman at the well, remember what he said in John chapter 4, verse 23, I'm reading there. He says, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God, and he's speaking of God the Father, God is spirit. Now this is Jesus speaking. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the Father does not have a body. Jesus is the Father all the Godhead embodied. And so the Father is in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of the Father. So the one sitting on the throne, we know this, is none other than Jesus Christ. Now we're going to get a lot more evidence of this as we go through chapters 4 and 5, but but we'll come back to that later. Now, look at his appearance here, looking back at this text. And Jesus' appearance was like a jasper and sardis stone. I mean, John saw things in heaven that he had never seen before, on earth. And so he's doing his very best to describe these things, these things that he had never seen before in his life. And even if John had had a camera up there and he had taken pictures of what he saw in heaven and he brought those pictures down and we had those pictures in the Bible, we still wouldn't recognize what all of this is because we've never seen these things before either. No eye has seen and no ear heard what God has prepared for those Who love the Lord. I mean, one day we're going to see these things ourselves with our physical eyes. But right now, we wouldn't, even if we had pictures, we wouldn't understand exactly what was going on here. So what John is doing here, he's doing his very best to interpret this this vision that he sees, to, to, to describe this vision, and he uses similes. He uses these likenesses to, to, to what he is actually seeing. Now, uh, You've got to be careful whenever you interpret something with a simile. You have to be really careful careful with that. First of all, you've got to keep it simple. You can't get too complicated with your similes or you'll lose the, the meaning of the text and you'll even come up with the wrong meaning. And you always, when you're interpreting a simile, you interpret it in the context of the word. You interpret it in the context of the verse You interpret it in the context of the chapter, and you interpret it in the context of the book, and then you interpret it in the context of the entire Bible. And if you're not careful and you go too far with your interpretation, you'll end up with the wrong meaning. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're some young man and you have this beautiful girlfriend that you absolutely love. And she has this wonderful countenance. And you want to describe that countenance, and the way you describe it is she has a face like the moon I mean she has this beautiful face just like the moon well that sounds pretty good in context what's the context the context is that the context is love and adoration isn't it that's the context but if you go too far with that simile then you might say man his girlfriend has this big pale round face with pits all over it so you you can misinterpret that very easily So we've got to be real careful of how we interpret uh, similes. And that's what we're getting here. We're getting similes. John's not saying that Jesus is a jasper stone and he's a sardis stone sitting on the throne. That's not what he's saying at all. It had this appearance of a jasper stone. It had this appearance of a sardis stone. And really what he's seeing there, he's seeing this radiant glow of God. This beautiful, radiant glow of God, and the only thing, the way he can describe it is as a jasper stone. Now, when we get over to Revelation chapter 21, we're going to see that a jasper stone, and and it's described for us, is the most precious stone on earth. It's clear and sparkling. It looks like a crystal. Now, what stone do you think is he talking about right there? What stone is that? He's talking about a diamond, no doubt. He's speaking of a diamond. And so on this throne is God, and he looks almost like a diamond. He's so beautiful and so radiant and so wonderful that he looks like a diamond. And then he also looks like a sardius stone. Now, sardius stone was a stone that was mined in sardis. And it's, it's like our ruby. Actually, it is our ruby. That's what they were famous for mining. Now, what's a ruby? What color is a ruby? Ruby is red. And so he sees this red Sardis stone. And, and no doubt, in the context, we know that the one that's sitting on the throne is Jesus. And so what is he trying to tell us in this vision? He's telling us that God, our Savior, the rock of ages, the stone of ages, is not just any ordinary rock. I mean, he doesn't describe it as some ordinary rock. He destri- describes things like a diamond in his beauty and his majesty uh, and his deity. And he's ruby red. And why is this diamond ruby red? Let me tell you why it's ruby red. Because of the blood that Jesus Christ shed for each and every one of us. And we're gonna see that. You know, I believe when we get to heaven, we're gonna see this, 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 this it, Jesus in, in a body. But he's going to be so majestic that he's going to look like a diamond and he's going to glow with this red. This red, he's going to emanate this red color, which is his blood, his blood that covers up. The blood that he shed on the cross, the blood of God. It's not the blood of some ordinary man that was shed for you and I, it was the very blood of God. And so, so when we see this diamond, it describes his beauty and his majesty and his deity and this, this red, ruby-red appearance describes the blood that he shed for us now a couple of weeks ago i had a dream and i'm i don't i know i see some of you yawning already uh i i don't normally share my dreams because if i share my dreams some of my dreams you you guys would walk out of here and never listen to me again because my sometimes my dreams i go back into my wicked past and and dream about some of the things i used to do and i wake up like oh god thank you i'm not there anymore You know, and then most of my dreams are just crazy stuff that make no sense. But I had a dream a couple of weeks ago. And it was one of those dreams, you know, you have a dream and you you think maybe it might have come from God because it's, it's something spiritual and it sticks in your mind for days and days and days. And you can't get it out of your mind. And when I have a dream like that, I feel like maybe that dream came from God. Well, let me tell you about my dream. If you don't want to. Believe this and you want to go to sleep, you can go to sleep. No, don't go to sleep. But anyway, I heard this dream and it was about our church. Our church right here on 111 Chameleon. And in this dream, our church was the same, but it was as if it had been remodeled on the outside. The whole exterior was remodeled and it looked like a ruby red crystal all around the building. You still could see the old building, but it was this ruby red diamond almost. It was the most beautiful church I'd ever seen. You still could see the old white brick and stuff as you saw through this crystal, but it was the most beautiful church I'd ever seen. I mean, it made that church they built down on College Saloon, that St. Pius, it made it look like junk. It made the crystal cathedral look like junk. And I woke up out of that dream, and I said, well, God, I guess you want us to remodel the church one day. That would be a great thing to do, and I thought about that for several days, but how would I ever get that look? I mean, we don't have the money to put crystal all the way around this church. If we painted it red, I don't think anybody would ever come again. And and so, Lord, I could never get that. Look, and I kept thinking, what is God saying to me? And what is God saying to me? Well, this past week, when I pulled out my text and I started studying Revelation chapter 4, I knew exactly what God was saying to me in that that dream. He wasn't telling us that we need to remodel the church. He was telling us that what this church looks like to him. He sees this church as beautiful. He sees this church as embodied, and as covered by him. It's, it, it's his deity and majesty and beauty that surrounds this church, and we are covered in his blood. I, I guess that's what he was telling me. But, you know, you can take that and you can apply that On an individual basis I mean in Psalms chapter 34 we're told that the angel of the Lord encamps around and over and through all who fear him and he delivers them out of all their trials he's encamped over you and i and i think if our eyes were open and we could see god encamped over us we might see something very similar we might it's not crystal it's not solid but it would all if we were trying to describe it we would see his deity and his majesty and his beauty over us and that ruby red color over us and we would know what the ruby red is it's his blood but all of that all of that crystal of that deity and that majesty that cover us we would see that and and we would be in awe and and that's why the psalmist goes on in in psalm 34 and he says oh taste and see that the lord is good blessed is the man who trusted him there is no want to those who fear him those who seek the lord shall not like any lack anything good you'll have all you need if you Seek the Lord, if you know the Lord. And then going on, looking back at this vision, and he says, and then above his head is a rainbow. Now, this isn't just like some multicolored rainbow, uh, some arc of light that we see after the rain. We see this encircling the throne. And so it's a circular light. Above the throne. It's like a halo above the throne. And the color of it, it's not multicolored like a rainbow. The color of it is emerald in appearance. Now, what color is emerald? Green. And so above the throne, above Jesus' head, is this halo of green light. And well, let me quote one scholar. Here's how he describes it. A halo of clear green light above the the head of Jesus and above the throne. So you can picture that with your eyes. I mean picture that with your eyes. Why green? I mean why green? Well, my wife says that God's favorite colors are green and blue. I don't know if that's true. God hadn't told me that and probably didn't told you either. and it's not in the word what His favorite colors are. But I know that some of the grandest scenes in God's creation, are made up of green and blue. Riding my motorcycle up through Arkansas a few weeks back and I was up, in, up on those mountains and the skies were totally blue. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and all of those hills and mountains and trees, they were all green and it was just absolutely beautiful. You know, we used to live in the desert southwest where, where everything's dead. You know, you have a little bit of grass that people implant there, but you know, you got to really work to keep it there, and and uh, just about everything's dead. Now you get the blue skies, but you don't get the green. And I remember when we moved to Louisiana to go to seminary, and I'd lived in the South all my life, but I had forgotten how green everything is. And the reason everything's so green is that it's alive. I mean, the reason everything's so barren in in Las Vegas and Phoenix is that everything's dead. And so green speaks of what? It speaks of life. And so here is this halo of life above the head of Jesus Christ. I was here Wednesday night, and we were doing worship Wednesday night before Bible study, and I was looking up at that cross and that crown of thorns, and I was thinking how that applies to what we're studying right here, how Jesus had a halo of death above his head, a halo of the curse above his head, these dead thorns, these, the thorns which represent the curse, and this dead vine which represents death, and he was dying for our sins. Well, that's not so in heaven anymore. In heaven he has a halo, a crown, a crown, a green crown, and it's a crown of life. There is no death in heaven. There is no curse in heaven. And as we're advancing on in this book, we're, we're going to see that one day there's not going to be any curse or death on this earth. That's where we're heading. All right, and then look at verse number four. We get some exciting stuff right here in verse number four. He says, around the throne were 24, around the throne of God were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw twenty-four elders. Now that number is divisible by what? Six. You can say four or six. Four. Uh, I think six is what's relevant right here because six is the number of what? The number of men. So we know that these are men. Men or women? Now around the throne were twenty-four. Around the throne of God were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders. Now look at the description here. They're sitting two. They're not standing. Now, you would think they were on their faces or they would be standing before God. But they're sitting. That's important. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they're clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, who are these 24 elders? Some people would say that these 24 elders are 12 of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. I don't know which 12 they're picking out. And and then... The 12 disciples. And the 12 disciples uh, include Paul, who replaces Judas. Well, that could be, but I don't think so. I think something much bigger is going on here. And I believe we can figure out exactly who these elders are in context. How do we, how do we interpret these similes and these visions? In context. In context of what we've already studied. Look, notice each one is on a throne. Each one is clothed in white robes. I mean, white robes, and we know that word again means light, so it's a white light. So each one's clothed in a white robe of light. That means they've been totally cleansed of their sin. That means they're filled with the Holy Spirit, with the very life of God. And they're they're emanating the glory of God. And they're wearing golden crowns. Notice that. And they're ruling and reigning with God. Jesus Christ. You know, I think John knew exactly who these 24 elders were when he saw these 24 elders. uh, And he knew exactly who they represent. I'll tell you, they represent the church. That's very important to your eschatology here now. Who's in heaven now? They represent the church. And let me tell you why we know that. Because in context, the thrones and the white robes and the crowns are the eternal rewards that were promised to the seven churches. Those are the rewards. Let me give you a few examples. The thrones. Remember what Jesus said to the Laodicean church. If they would open the door and let him in, he said to him who overcomes, how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. And I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So here they are, and they're on thrones. And how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. Then there are the white garments, those white garments of light. Uh, remember what he, he promised the church in Sardis. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments of light. That's that same word, Luke, Lucas, there that means white light, white garments of light and then they're wearing crowns. Look at verse two, chapter 2, verse 10. He told the church at Smyrna, he told them to hang in there through persecution that he would give them the crown of life. Then look back at verse chapter 3, let me try to find it here, verse 11. Listen what he says in verse number 11 to the church of Philadelphia. He says to hold fast to what you have so that you, no one can take your crown from you. So in verse 4 in the context of these letters John sees 24 elders in heaven who have received their rewards. They are sitting on 24 thrones. They're wearing white robes of light and they're wearing golden crowns. All the things that Jesus promised to the church, to those who have real faith in him. And so John knows that these 24 elders represent the church of Christ. Now, why 24 elders? Where does, it, where, does, where does this number come from? Why 24? Well, I already mentioned that six is the number of men. But you don't have to turn there, but it's very interesting. There's 24 elders. And if you go back to 1 Chronicles 24, chapter 24, David, if you remember, divided the Levitical priesthood into 24 divisions of rotating priests. The whole tribe of Levi was divided into 24 visions of rotating priests. And these priests would be chosen by lottery or at different times, and they would come into the temple, the actual temple, and they would minister in the temple. And each one of these 24 divisions had David appointed an elder for each division. And that system continued until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., It's really interesting. We'll be heading up on Christmas here really soon, and I'm excited about that, by the way. But if you remember in the Christmas story of Luke chapter 2, when the angel of Gabriel came to Zacharias, we're told in that passage that Zacharias was serving his turn in the temple as part of the division of the elder Abijah. And so Abijah, Abijah, let me reword it again. But he was doing his duty, his turn in the temple. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, we're told, you don't have to turn there, that the things related to the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple serve as copies and shadows of heavenly things. So this, thing, this system that God uh, gave David... To introduce to the Levitical system where he divided it up into 24 divisions led by 24 elders is actually a picture of what is taking place in eternity, always in heaven. So these 24 elders that, of the Levitical priesthood serve as shadows of the 24 elders who are actually in heaven heaven and I believe they represent the entire church in heaven that's why if you go back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 when John addressed the church in verse number 6 he says that he has made us. Jesus has made us kings and priests to God his father to the God to his God and father to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever and a forever and ever amen Now, this is really interesting to me, because I've always wondered how we're going to rule and reign with Christ. It's going to get pretty crowded up there, I mean, even if all of you make it. I know I'm going to be there. But even if all of you make it, it's going to get pretty crowded in the temple for all of us to rule and reign. You take all the churches in America today and all the churches all over the world today and all the Christians who've ever been saved, it's going to get awful crowded in Jerusalem if we all try to squeeze in that temple at one time. But I don't think we're going to be there at one time. I think those duties are going to be rotated throughout the millennium and throughout eternity. But I want you to get this. One day, if you're truly a born-again believer you're going to serve in the very temple of God. One day, you're going to more than likely sit on one of those 24 thrones, and you're going to be ministering to God and serving God in the very presence of God. That is some pretty exciting stuff to me. David understood that. You remember in Psalms chapter 84, he says, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, I mean, here's the king of all of Israel. And and listen to what he says. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, for for a day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I mean, one day, I'm going to tell you the most prized Vacation you're ever going to have, or most prized job you're ever going to have, I don't. Know, depending on how you look at it, is going to be able to, is going to be to serve in the temple of the living God, to serve in the throne room of God. Now, go back to chapter four and look at the position of these elders. Look at look at the position they're in. Notice notice what they're doing. Now, there's some argument. You can argue against this being the church. I'm going to show you later on when we get to Revelation 5. This is definitely the church. But but I want you to notice the position they're in. It's very important. I said earlier, they're not standing. They're not on their face. What are they doing? They're sitting. And that's significant. Because remember what happened when Jesus was done on the cross and he ascended back to heaven. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that when Jesus finished his work on this earth, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did he sit down? Why is he sitting now? Because his work is done on earth. He's going to come back up. He's going to get off that throne. He's going to come back to earth to rule and reign with his saints. But notice the position of these elders. They're not busy running around doing things. What are they doing? They're sitting because the work of Jesus Christ is a finished work and because their work on earth is done. In other words, they've been removed from the earth and now they're in heaven and their work on earth is done. Now, there's a lot of work that's about to take place on earth at this point in time in heaven and on earth, even though they're out of time in heaven. from an anthropomorphistic position, then, you know, they're still in time. But what's about to happen on earth at this point? What's about to take place on earth at this point? The great tribulation. Where's the church now? In heaven. A great work is about to take place on this earth. They're not part of that work. They've been removed from this earth. And the Antichrist is about to be revealed. And so now, here, get the picture of what we've seen so far. Here's, here's the snapshots that John has given us. We see a door open to heaven. Anybody who can, wants to come can come in. Now, you better, you're better you not getting up there until you've given your life to the Lord and you've been, been saved by his blood. But anyone who wants to come to Jesus Christ can come. But no one can come unless the Father draws him. But anybody who comes, the door is open to heaven. And inside the door, we see the throne of God. And in God's presence, we see the church. And now, the day of the Lord is about to begin. All, you know, what's about to break loose on this earth. And so we get our next snapshot of heaven in verse number five. And it fits perfectly with the timing of all of this. Look at verse number five. and John's trying to describe what he's seeing here. And he says, and from the throne, he's talking about the throne of God, proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And also, now who's the God that's on the throne? Jesus. I want you to get all this straight now. Now, where was God who was on the throne in the first three chapters of this book? He was down on the earth talking to John. Now he's on the throne and notice where the spirits are now. The seven lamps and the and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. It's very important to notice that. That's different from what we saw in chapter number one. Wednesday night or Wednesday morning rather when I was getting this sermon ready i was typing on this sermon it began to light it, we began to see lightning and i heard thunder and then all of a sudden we had that storm and i didn't it was tough to even get to church it rained so much over there when i heard that thunder and whenever you're in louisiana and you hear thunder and lightning you say uh-oh what's next Because you never know how much rain we were going to get. They said we were going to get a half inch of rain. And we got eight inches of rain in Broussard. And it was flooding everywhere. So whenever you hear lightning. Or you see lightning. And you hear thunder. You know that a storm is coming. And that's exactly what is being pictured here. And voices are speaking. Things are happening in heaven. Orders are being given. And when we get to chapter 6. We come out of. When when we come out of heaven and we come back to the earth, we're going to hear all of these voices giving orders, angels being ordered to do certain things down on this earth. And so, from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, here's what I want you to notice. The seven lamps are what? The seven spirits of God. And he tells us where they are. They're before the throne. Now, when we were in chapter one, we saw these seven lamps, and where were they? That Jesus was walking in the midst of the seven lamps on earth. And he was writing these letters to the seven churches. The seven lamps, we're told, are the seven spirits of God. And remember what we learned back in chapter number one? Those seven spirits, there's no such thing as seven Holy Spirits. They represent the Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. But how many churches were those letters written to? Seven churches, which represent what? All the churches. So seven spirits represent one church. I mean, seven spirits represent one, one spirit, and seven churches represent the entire church. And so you have this picture on earth of the seven spirits, the seven lamps on earth, and Jesus is walking, doing his work within the the church. Now, Jesus is not walking on earth. The seven lamps aren't on earth. The seven spirits aren't on earth. So that means that the Spirit, has God, has been removed from the earth, and when the Spirit of God has been removed from the earth, then the church has been removed from the earth. And all of that makes sense. That's why you have the 12, 24 elders representing the entire church, the entire priesthood of believers. You have them on their thrones, sitting, sitting because their work on earth is done. Now, friends, that fits exactly with what Paul told us about the Great Tribulation when it would begin over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember, I told you I wanted to go through 2 Thessalonians before we got here so all of this would make sense. So go back to 2 Thessalonians. You're still with me? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at what Paul told us there. Now, he says, beginning in verse number 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 7. Just a few books back from Revelation, back toward the beginning. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, he, in caps, that's the spirit of God, the seven lamps with the seven lampstands. He who now restrains will do it until he is taken out of the way. He's brought back to heaven. What do we see in Revelation chapter 4? Where's the Spirit of God? He's back in heaven. He's been removed from the earth. And then, verse number 8, the lawless, lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. And the great tribulation is going to begin. And so at this throne of God, we see these lightnings, and we see these thunderings, because the great and all of these orders are being barked out, and the Antichrist is about to come on the scene because the great tribulation is about to begin. And it's going to last seven years, but I like the way Paul just skips all of that, and he says, uh, "The Lord will consume the Antichrist and all his armies with the breath of his mouth and destroy and, and destroy with him with the brightness of his coming." I mean, he's toast. Don't worry about him. And where are you going to be when all of that takes place? You're going to be in heaven with the Lord. Your work on earth is done. If you're not doing any work on earth, this is your chance. Because when you're called to heaven, your work, if you're called to heaven. I've got to wonder sometimes if you have no desire To do anything but live your life for yourself and not for God and not for others. If you're even part of that kingdom. And I'm not trying to put you on a, on a guilt trip because we're saved by grace. But grace, faith without works, James says, is dead. But there's coming a time. If you're working in the kingdom of God, if you're working, it might be in your family, at your home. You know, it doesn't mean you've got to be a pastor or anything like that, but you're doing God's work. If God's, God's the most important thing in your life, if every morning you get up thinking of God and you spend your day thinking of God and how am I going to serve God, and you're doing that work, that work's going to end someday. We're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb when all of this stuff takes place. And all of that, all of that timing fits perfectly. It's so cool to me. I mean, you can go all the way back to Zechariah, what we're studying in Zechariah right now. It all fits perfectly with what we're studying in Zechariah. If you, get, if you try to twist these things, you can't ever get them to fit. But, man, when you start seeing the Word of God from Genesis to... To revelation, all being about mankind and the redemption of mankind and the redemption of the church and the church of God in heaven. It all makes sense. And he's coming. And he's going to destroy the Antichrist and everyone on this earth, except the tribulation saints. He's going to destroy everyone on this earth with the brightness of his coming. Those are some snapshots, some pretty Amazing snapshots of heaven. And I've done my best to try to embellish what John wrote for you here. I mean, just reading that, just in its context and reading it without any help, it's some amazing, amazing stuff. And like I say, I've done my best to try to interpret it and embellish it for you, but even then, I can't show you exactly what John has seen uh, in these days When he was in heaven, I I I can't show you that. I remember when I was a young boy, and we were, my parents used to show us snapshots of the Grand Canyon. Ever seen pictures of the Grand Canyon sunset at the Grand Canyon? Most most beautiful pictures in the world, I think, are taken from the Grand Canyon. You get you you one of those books on the Grand Canyon. Just go through it. it's just, it it's beautiful. But I'll tell you what, I remember as a young boy when we made our first vacation to the Grand Canyon. And I remember we were driving, the land's kind of flat as you drive towards the canyon. And I remember going through that park entrance, and right as you get through that park entrance, you see something you've never seen before. I don't care how many pictures you've looked at. And it absolutely took my breath away. The majesty. And beauty of that canyon was, was, no way you could describe that. No way I could describe it now. you got to see it if you've never seen it. i got to tell you something. One day, when we're taken up out of here, and we enter the very throne room of God, If we weren't given glorified bodies at that point, we would die from fear and awe and reverence. You're going to see things one day that are beyond your imagination, way beyond your imagination. Wonderful things. We have so much to look forward to. But you better be sure. You better be sure that you're covered in that blood. That that deity, that jasper stone and that sardis stone of God is encamped around you. You know it if he is. And probably you know it if he's not. But if he's not, the door's open. Anyone can come in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these visions that you give us of heaven. Lord, we see things here that that no way, Lord, that we can visualize exactly what we'll see one day with our physical eyes, but we see enough here to know, Lord, that we have great and mighty things to look forward to, to be in your presence, Lord. That's the greatest privilege a man or woman could possibly have to be in your physical presence. Lord, help us now to see that you've set your tent all over us, around us, surrounding us. And that even now, Lord, that we can sense your presence. And Lord, we just look forward to that day when when all the veils are removed and we see heaven in you for who you truly are. Lord if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ truly as their Savior I ask that Lord you touch their heart to look through that open door Lord and see the cross and see you hanging there for our sins and Lord just receive that gift of salvation and receive your Holy Spirit Lord and Lord we just We have so much, so much blessings in our life now and so much to look forward to in the days to come. But we are truly a blessed people. And all of that comes through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.